All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Sonny Drake. Sonny Drake is a multi-award-winning playwright, a proud trans person. Sonny's innovative multi-award-winning theater work has been shown in over 60 different cities around the world and have been translated into six different languages. Sonny's latest work is called Climate Change and Other Small Talk. It's a radio drama-esque play performance in podcast form. So every episode is written by a different playwright from around the world and addresses the big topic of climate change, but from the perspective of different cultures. It's a very moving and engaging work. It's available on wherever podcasts can be found, all the podcast streaming platforms, climate change and other small talk. Definitely check it out. So I've been thinking a lot about plays lately. Uh, my girlfriend, Hope, is a playwright. And uh, we went and saw the uh, the last hurrah of the Athens Theater Playwright Program, which consisted of a handful of full finished works. We watched two of them. They were each three hours. I should say Athens, Ohio. Okay. Um, not Athens, Greece. I'm sure they, they'll be making plays forever. But uh, it was really cool. It was really cool to think analytically in kind of playwriting structure and form and grander tales, like engaging in that type of thought process and that type of writing thought and that type of form. Hope's been writing a play for the Frans, Cleveland's premier pro-public transit punk band. They're performing at Fringe Fest in August, August uh, 5th for sure. They got a 10-minute spot and uh, it's a it's a program that's going to share some type of pro public transit punkness to it, and uh, so that's it's been extracurricular uh, playwright engagement via the Frans. So in August, if you're looking for some live playwork, definitely check out what the Frans have going on at the Fringe Fest. This was a return to form as far as Zig at the Gig podcast go. Um, it was done in my van outside of a nursing home gig. And it's much shorter than every other episode so far this year because of that. I tried to reach out and reschedule our timing, but the message didn't get through. So we have a very short interview with Sonny. But Sonny shares a lot of uh, good information for inspiring playwrights, maybe uh, specifically playwrights who are writing about pro-public transit punk bands placement in a fringe festival with that being said if you can like rate review subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms helps me keep talking to cool guests like sunny and sharing their insight with you so without further ado here's my talk with sunny my first question is what drew you to theater yeah well i've always been you know even as a kid i loved stories um, I loved sort of clowning around. Um, so, you know, I certainly um, just kind of had a, a love of the theatric as a kid. When I really feel like I kind of came into my stride in storytelling and theatre was in my 20s as a kind of, I guess, as a way of exploring what it was that was confusing me or um, that I was excited about or trying to figure out or sometimes things like when hard things would happen too, it would sort of spit out the side. And I guess as a way of sharing and a way of exploring, um, a, a way of reflecting my experience um, and asking big questions of audiences. And particularly for me, um, I started uh, you know, doing all sorts of kind of performance and creative and, and theatre stuff because I really wasn't seeing 
my own story on stage. So I'm a trans person and, you know, that we're starting to see some great shifts with some more, you know, kind of trans story um, telling, you know, in, across all the different mediums, um, you know, we've still got a really long way to go and trans stories are even more important, you know, now with this sort of big anti-trans backlash that we're seeing in, in a lot of places. Um, that, so for me, it was sort of really, uh, you know, I wanted to see experiences that I understood and resonated with and or could or stories that I could aspire towards um, on stage. And and so even though now I, you know, I make a really wide range of um, topics, um, I work about a wide range of topics, um, you know, but, it also, but my, you know, my experience as a trans person has sort of, I guess, informed kind of my earlier work and also how I could, you know, how I've learned and created work even now. What well, that's, that's, a, that's super inspiring. One thing I think, I, I don't know if this, uh, when the through line is with your earlier work was like, so through like kind of finding this medium of like theatrics and play, like, did that kind of help you find yourself in that sense as well? Mm-hmm. Or did that yeah, kind of I... give you an outlet for it? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, you know, I I come from communities of people, you know, kind of um, queer and trans folks who have always had to be very creative to, you know, to just really as a, a survival tactic and as a kind of way of sort of asserting, you know, um, uh, our identities out in the world as well. So certainly kind of, you know, I've been influenced by a bunch of, you know, kind of queer aesthetics and, and trans aesthetics and artists. And and then for me, yeah, it was, you know, kind of really a way to, um, to you know, make sure that like it, like it, it had a, a quite an intense impact on me that I grew up completely without any trans stories around me like it's very hard to understand who you are when you have no reflections of yourself around you and so um you know and I think uh something that I've worked really hard towards as well is um being able to and kind of giving myself permission to but also convincing the kind of um, gatekeepers within theatre and the performance world that, you know, I should be able to also make work about a really broad range of things. So, you know, I see, um, you know, with climate change and other small talk, um, this podcast that um, I've just released, um, you know, I see making um, climate work as, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, I've been concerned about and really, you know, wanted to kind of create a body of work about. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed as only able to create work about quote unquote trans stuff, which I mean, that's sort of a weird way to look at it anyway. Like I see climate themes as trans themes as well. You know, it climate change impacts literally every single person on the planet. Um, and, you know, and it impacts all of us in different ways um, as well. So that's also part of why, you know, I've worked with a hundred different artists across the world in these nine different cities, um, each with their own stories, you know, um, about a really wide range of experiences because all the artists have been from, you know, very different walks of life. Yeah. Well, the one, like, with that that's such an amazing project in that sense that you can reach that far and work with that many different uh, viewpoints that kind of all have the same if anything it universifies the problem you know it brings everything to though it may be because i've listened to every episode you put out so far and they're all very engaging and like 
it, 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 it's amazing how no matter what walk of earth you're at, it all kind of comes to the same critical impact with it. And when I listened, your episode was the for absolutely uh, nothing of any meaning, being the first one. Um, when I get dove into that one first, not knowing, you know, really what to expect from a, like an audio play, you, even though like we've had radio shows forever, I was really drawn in with the the bleakness and like this this these this couple and like how they won't even switch on a light switch, like um, with your experience with climate change and like your thoughts with it like did any of like the writing of your like your episode did you know the other episodes that were coming out like were you reading this or is it slowly piecing together as it as with yours as like a starting point does that make sense yeah yeah okay. it was actually a really cool process like i mean first i created um my own episode first as sort of a part of like as kind of like a proof of concept of the whole project um and sort of as a way to then be able to you know when i was approaching people these theater companies from around the world and also funding bodies etc to go hey you know here's the concept and the idea and here's an example of what i'm meaning by you know, audio drama and the possibilities with it. So I created that first then without knowing who else was even going to be involved and what they were going to write about. And then um, I worked with an impact producer who's um, who was going to be really looking kind of closely at the art and how can we make a bridge between art and activism and how can we actually take some of that energy of our audiences and and shift them into um, to action after they experience the audio dramas. So um, the impact producer and I then did a, a bunch of research and pulled together um, snippets from climate justice leaders and climate activists around the world, um, like little like tweets and essays and comics and, um, you know, any like to, to and we gave that as inspiration for the playwrights to sort of go, look, each of the playwrights, first and foremost, their task was to write something that felt locally juicy and relevant. But having said that, also to kind of really do a little period of sort of reflection around, OK, what are climate justice leaders um, locally and also around the world saying? What are their priorities? What are their visions? And allowing some of that to kind of infuse into the work. And, and then it was really fascinating when I got the um, audio dramas back, it then became my job to kind of go, okay, so here are the nine works that got created. What would be uh, a compelling and interesting journey for the audience through the um, through the audio dramas? And so in each of the sort of introductions, so I'm also the host of the podcast, I introduce each episode, I sort of uh, frame a little bit, um, you know, and kind of invite folks into the stage of the journey that I see that we're on. And so kind of my piece then sort of starts with, you know, you described a sort of a bleakness or an inaction, um, a kind of um, a series of sort of fears and what are the things that stop us from um, taking action on the climate, even though most of us really want to, we care we want to do something. What's actually stopping us? So kind of we go, we start from that place in a journey of sort of inaction and go through a whole series of um, of plays that kind of take us in in through sort of different stages and different challenges in climate movements and also into you know periods of like vision and action and um, and all of this done too through you know with each of the short audio dramas like some like playing with some form of either satire 
or absurdity or humor in some way, even if it's sort of a kind of an uncomfortable humor in the sense that, you know, nobody really wants to look at the fact that we're kind of messing stuff up. But if we can also kind of, um, you know, poke fun at ourselves a little bit, my aim is really to create something that's entertaining and enjoyable, something that people at the end of a long day of work want to go, you know what? I'm going to actually tune into that rather than what I noticed happening with myself and a bunch of other folks is at some point it it, it can be so overwhelming and frankly, like quite scary. So it's easy to just sort of go, oh, you know what, I'll think about the climate tomorrow. I've just got to get the, you know, get the washing done and take care of the kids and the money, like blah, 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 you know, all of the kind of um, stuff like that. So it was really important to me too to like, you know, um, uh, make sure each of these pieces were really entertaining and draw us in. Because I want to, one, I really love how at the end of it, every episode there's an action, there's a thing to do, and like that, you know, or a place to go. And I think that's super important too. And that that's the whole thing. But the whole play, the whole, the whole story draws you into like wanting to look into that action. So I love that that's, a, that's there from the rip and from the post to now you can do a thing if you're so moved. And, uh, like, with yours, I really like the, the satire of, like, the Amazon character, Amazon, uh-huh. how it always uh-huh. tunes in and tunes out. <laughs> like, the we, interesting point with, like, mindfulness kind of maybe, like, almost being mind-numbingness to, in a certain degree, which I found really profound. But it's, like, those, mm-hmm. it's those kind of self-checks that unless you look at it in an absurdist kind of way you don't really tend to think past that. And that's what really inspires someone to want to reflect upon themselves or follow the action through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've just always found humor such a powerful way to draw me into a conversation. You know, it's it's quite amazing. And because in my um, art form with my plays, I often work with some form of comedy or humor about very difficult um, themes and topics, about stuff that would otherwise be really hard to, you know, discuss or engage with. And it's so fascinating. I, I sit there with my audiences when it's a live play and watch how, you know, in the act of sort of laughing, we're actually able to sit deeper with the really hard stuff. Like if we can kind of like, it's something about, I don't know what it is, like what the mechanism of laughter is. Does it, um, you know, make us relax into things more? Does it allow us to kind of release something that then we can go deeper? Um, And then, you know, uh, it's a really fascinating, um, you know, kind of mechanism, but I found it such a powerful tool to get in sideways around people's overwhelm and defensiveness and and all of the rest. Um, And you can, you can also just get away with a lot with uh, comedy or humor. It's, um, it's really fascinating. Yeah, there's definitely a comfort in a comedic approach. And almost it's kind of maybe it harkens to the idea that comedy resonates and it's funny because it's true. So if you're moved, Pat, if your body has this national natural reaction of trying to exhale air or whatever like your body's doing when you're laughing, there's like this whole sense of like truth to it. One one mm. uh, one of your other works that I found um really inspiring and especially with the comedic bits is childish. And uh, like, can I ask a little bit about the process with that? Because in that in that work, you you interviewed a bunch of kids, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So I had um, conversations with over 40 kids. Yeah. Like some of them were um, conversations where I would sit in on a kind of group chat between kids or with just two kids. Sometimes it was just me and a kid chatting with a parent kind of, you know, doing their thing in, in the background. Um, and then I have I, I take these exact things that kids have said and I have adult actors speaking the, uh, the speaking them word for word. So the adult actors are not pretending to be kids. They're not imitating kids. They're literally just taking the exact thing kids have said and speaking them themselves and and seeing what that sounds like. And it's it's so fascinating that sometimes it sounds eerily resonant resonant like it sounds like bizarrely kind of natural coming from an adult and what does that tell us if if something sounds you know so resonant what does that tell us about both adults and kids and then there are other moments where it's it's almost it's quite jarring and it could be actually quite hilarious to hear an adult speak these words or are sometimes even quite heartbreaking to hear an adult speak these words and we learn really interesting things about both kids and adults uh, through that process and um you know and it was just a lot of fun to work on um that that project and we finally got so there's the web series version um which is available on my website uh for free and then uh next year in february 2024 we have um the live version premiering in vancouver that's awesome it's a re- the web series version is really well shot too like i yeah I, I couldn't believe, like, just, I mean, I I work with kids, so I'm used to, like, hearing kids say, like, absurd, like, detailed topic, you know, diving into things. But even just, like, things like uh, how they almost, like, one episode's almost just about consent in a way. You know, like, I think Mm -hmm. it was, like, the third, Mm -hmm. like, and hearing what kids have to say about that, and you're like, to some extent, why can't it just be, like, we all have, like, this, there's this innocence to it. Because you know where it's coming from, but there's this beauty to it, too, because it's so simple. And if a kid can get it, we can get something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It was really um, incredible, the range of things that kids wanted to talk about. And, um, you know, and including some actually some pretty challenging themes and topics. Like when in the interviews, um, you know, I didn't ask any questions around, um, you know, I wasn't specifically aiming to interview about mental health and certainly not about suicide. But when those two themes started coming up, and this is, um, you know, the to give a, um, a context for I, it, the age of kids were between age five and 12. And I was, you know, honestly, when when these themes, start, quite intense themes started coming up in a couple of the interviews, I freaked out a little bit and sort of shut the conversation down and went away and did my own research about how to have, you know, age appropriate conversations about some of these full on topics. And then I went back to the parents and sort of said, look, you know, um, some of these themes have been coming up in um, some of the interviews. Um, Here's some of the research I've done about how to talk with kids about this. I'd really like to, like, go back and talk with kids more about these themes coming up. And the, um, you know, the... uh, um, and then ended up having actually very profound conversations with kids about something that like, I think that because we don't think that, um, you know, things like mental health um, or, for example, the climate, we often don't think that stuff that's really hard that's going on would be appropriate to talk with kids about. But the problem is uh, they already know about it. They're tuned into, they're hearing it in the media, 
they're hearing it, um, you know, out in the world, they're hearing their friends talk about it, they overhear, you know, they overhear adults talking about it. Like, I think we often kind of think that kids are just off in the background playing, but they're, you know, usually just soaking up um, lots of things, you know, and observing lots of things. So they already know that, you know, the planet is in a really precarious state. They already know somebody who has had, um, you know, experience of uh, suicide in a family, you know, and um, so they know about these things. So we have to be talking with them about it. And I found some of the nuanced and interesting um, and very smart perspectives that kids had on some of these things that I hadn't considered talking with them about really quite blew me away, along with some of then the huge gap areas of like, you know, these brilliant things they'd have to say, but then also these areas that they that were such, you know, stunning oversights of, oh, my God, we should be talking with kids about this immediately. Um, Because, you know, in trying to sort of protect kids from these intense topics then and not talking with them about it, then they've got they're they're also kind of missing that um, that kind of adult guidance through stuff as well. Um, You know, and so it became this whole process became such a rich two way street. I felt like I was learning so much from these kids and also, you know, um like so both being able to really respect kids for who they are now and not just see them as sort of future adults but rather as you know um incredible community members who have all of this stuff to contribute so respecting and and learning from kids and also you know offering stuff to kids offering sort of guidance and and mentoring and um you know so was this really cool process within our very intergenerational team and I think that's super important to be able to – It was that kind of – I think, one, it's super important to address them as if they are, like how you said, just members of a community, not like I'm a older, you listen to me, and you're younger, you hear what I say, but rather everyone is heard on the same same level. Um, did – like what were some of the like – because that's a really interesting like dive of research. How do you – like what were some of the things you found to uh, begin a conversation – a heavy conversation with a kid, like through your research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for a start, it's kind of like always starting with asking them, oh, like, you know, what do you know? Like, what do you, I'm curious, what do you know about this? Like, have you heard about, you know, um, depression? Like, have you heard about the concept of depression or, or whatever it is, the climate? Oh, what do you know about the climate? Um, you know, and sort of so, uh, so starting from a place of like kind of asking, well, what, what do you already know? And not assuming that kids either will or won't know something. What do you already know? What question? And then, you know, what do you know? And then what questions do you have? So really kind of like, you know, allowing kids to kind of run the conversation as well in terms of, you know, they are probably already have a whole bunch of questions um, you know, ready to go that, you know, um, and, and, and kids then sort of, you know, being able to follow their own curiosity around, um, particular things. And, um, and, you know, for sure there's like, I mean, we have to understand, you know, kids brains developmentally are at very particular points. For example, you know, kids of particular ages can't really grasp time in the same way that adult brains can can't really grasp consequences in the same way 
the idea of the future or the very distant future or the near future is very different. So there are really real cognitive differences and we have to keep those in mind in conversations. So for example, broaching, you know, chatting with a kid about something intense doesn't mean sharing every intense detail. Like it might yeah, mean, yeah. you know, talking in like breaking things down into, you know, simpler um, explanations. And to be t- perfectly honest, Adults often need things broken down into simple, you know, ways as well. Like it's not just kids too. It's like, you know, being able to sort of do some research and figure out how to explain something in a, you know, clear um, a clear and concise way really helps being able to talk with other adults sometimes too about it. Um, and then, yeah, and then also, I mean, it's a similar thing to what we're doing with climate change and other small talk. It's also then having coming up together with a series of actions like, you know, um, it can often help when you're talking about with something intense to feel like, yes, and there's something I can do about it. Even if I can't go out and fix the entire world right now, I can do my part. I can do, I can take some concrete steps. And kids often have really smart and interesting ideas for how to kind of, you know, take action around a, a variety of different things. And that, and it does, it does something in the body when instead of just kind of sitting around going, oh no, like this is terrible and horrible and the world is terrible and horrible. When we actually take those steps of, of action, you know, a whole series of great things happen that can make it feel more manageable, including getting to meet other people and getting sort of a, a bunch of kind of social you know, stuff from taking action together with other people. So, you know, those are like a couple of kind of um, uh, things that I that I really learned through, you know, doing a bunch of reading. That's Those are some amazing takeaways. Like one thing I really admire about your process is how much work before it even happened, before the, the, the writing, like the amount of research you're putting into it is really, really in, um, inspiring. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's such a, um, yeah, it's definitely, um, uh, uh, these pieces, you know, that I create and that many artists create can take, um, you know, you see sort of a, a finished product, but they can be many years in the making for sure. And like, I guess one, one other older project I kind of want to talk about before returning to climate change, um, men, how men express their feelings and like how you paired it with the. I'm sorry if I got the title wrong, but um, with a, like how it goes through like a hockey game, <laughs> like. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a comedy. Uh, men express their feelings, and and with each of my works, they often look quite different because my process is I basically kind of have an interest in some kind of theme or particular story, and then I really like to actually go, how can I reflect the content in the creative form itself. So rather than sort of just writing every single play looking quite similar, but with different themes and different content, I kind of go, what would make most sense for this piece? That's why with Childish, for example, it was, you know, it was a um, a verbatim piece, adult speaking kids exact words, because I wanted to see, you know, to um, see if that would make us listen differently to kids. And that's why with climate change and other small talk, it's a nine episode um, 
series of audio dramas created by nine teams around the world because in climate movements and climate science, it's a really important the interaction between the local and the global. And then, so similarly then with men express their feelings, I went, okay, well, I'm interested to explore masculinity and manness um, and kind of revision masculinity for the 21st century. You know, I think a lot of us know that masculinity is not really working out so well for men. It's not working out so well for women and non-binary people. There are a lot of men who really want to change you know, um, the ways that they're being in in their lives to free themselves and have, you know, different impacts on the people they love around them. And um, so I kind of started going, all right, well, masculinity, how can I structure this piece? Um, And I I wanted to make it um, uh, the play and the content a sporting piece because, you know, sports and in, in a Canadian context in particular, hockey, um, being like the pinnacle of masculinity, being the space that's seen as like the most, you know, toughest guys, um, you know, uh, around. But ironically, also being a space where it's actually bizarrely more acceptable to express your feelings than in many other areas of, of life. So it's, you know, I grew up in a, um, a, um, a diehard sporting family in Australia that was um, footy that was rugby um, not um, uh, hockey but you know it was perfect I have four older brothers we were all obsessed with sports and it was perfectly acceptable to you know shed a tear if your team or your favorite team lost a game but that was the only circumstances you know culturally in the space I grew up in where it was acceptable to be quite emotional so I kind of went okay if you know the it, the story is going to center around this incident that happens um in a in a hockey game then um why not structure the entire piece like a hockey game so it's into three different periods and we have um, um instant replays of uh key emotional moments so in the same way that in a hockey game you have you know, a kind of like the camera, the the sports instant replay from the different angles of the, you know, the winning goal or the fight or the something or other. Then in uh, Men Express Their Feelings, we do the same thing, but with emotional stuff. So we repeat the same kind of incident uh, multiple times from the different point point of views of of the characters Uh, and also have kind of characters step out and sometimes commentate uh you know the action Uh of what's actually going on between them and stuff so that sort of felt like it and then it feels like by by making some of those creative choices i'm already achieving some of what i want to achieve with the content by both working on a kind of story level but also working on a, a level of um how are people hearing and receiving the story Right. And you do that in, in every project I've gotten to dive into so far. You do that so well and in such a unique way. Like um, I'm my girlfriend's a playwright, so I, I get to go to a lot of plays and think about theater maybe a little more than some other musicians. And like when I when I got to dive into your stuff, I'm like, these are really creative insights. So so to kind of get like a quick process of it, it's kind of like you have an idea that you're, or a feeling or an emotion, a story you want to tell, and you really kind of like contemplate this thing. And then maybe it, it sounds like maybe it takes years or bubbles up right away. And then is the, the structure is not clear, but through these details of like research, the structure kind of shows itself to you. In this case, like 
like a sporting event and in like in climate change and like a, a radio podcast series? Is that kind of like um, just the yeah, kind of- yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the kind of structure of the piece might come very quickly in that research process, and other times it might take a, a ways into the research process. And when I'm saying research too, I'm kind of also including. Uh, sometimes there's just a, a piece or a story or something that's just sort of been floating around literally in the back of my mind for, you know, a year or two years or three years or five years. And when it sort of just floats around back there, I'm I'm kind of then just watching the world around me um, and sort of, you know, um, incubating kind of ideas towards that piece that's floating around. So, so it might not, you know, like and then at some point I kind of go right this is coming from the you know that background sort of floating around spot to now I'm actively working on this uh this piece and so at that point I might even be starting with you know a kind of concrete idea for not only the story but also the structure because it's sort of been floating around somewhere um for, for that period of time or other times when I when I bump it forward to write I'm actively working on it um it, it you know may take sort of um a, a chunk of time to really land and nail that structure that's um you know like with climate change and other small talk for example um you know I had decided I was going to write um a piece about the climate but it wasn't until um you know I got Part of my research process was I went on this absolutely mind-blowing artist residency on a boat in the Arctic Circle, like way north of um, Scandinavia. So there was 30 artists and scientists on a boat together and or each doing our own projects. And it was actually on that trip that I had the idea for instead of just writing this piece all on my own, but collaborating with these nine teams around the world. That's incredible. Sonny, I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate what you're doing. I have one more question before I got dart to this nursing home, um, and it may be a little more specific. For someone who doesn't get the, who may be writing a play, and maybe doesn't have enough time to let that structure and narrative kind of boil and like brew in the back of their mind, but uh, maybe feeling a bit of pressure to get it out now in the best way they can. What is like, have you ever had an experience like that where you had to do like a, a play that like maybe was backed by money and like it's maybe a little more, it needs to come out like the do lines in a week. And what what did you do to kind of help yourself through that type of process if you encountered something like that? Or what would yeah, you recommend? Yeah. yeah. Well, for a start, it's like um, just to say to I'll, I'll answer that in one second, that it doesn't have to be either or. Like mm-hmm. for me, I'm typically incubating. I may have like 10 of those ideas floating around in the background. And then I may have five different pieces that are all I'm actively developing, but all at very different stages. One might be near in premiere. One might be right. I've just carved out this. I've carved out a three week period where I'm going to do a you know, do a bit of like some research and sample writing. Um, so, you know, so in that way, it's sort of like um, it avoids a place where I, it, it avoids a situation where it's like, oh my God, now I have, you know, only a short amount of time to go from, you know, no idea to a finished piece because, you know, I'm typically, I have this whole 
you know, kind of cauldron of things that I'm incubating at once. So if I do then end up in a situation where an opportunity has come along and someone said, oh, you know, here's, we, we'd like you to create to this timeline. I, I have a bank of, um, of ideas to draw from and a bank of things that have already been brewing. Um, so, you know, so for towards that, then I really recommend folks get very disciplined and diligent about how are you keeping track of your creative ideas? So I have a whole system of um, notes on my phone. And when I'm reading the news or about in the world, I just press the upload button, upload it to the relevant note. It could either be by theme. Like I know, for example, I want to make another climate work. So I might just, you know, I upload it to the climate folder. Um, so, you know, really kind of, and the act then of, um, jotting down these creative ideas and thoughts also kind of stimulates other creative ideas and thoughts. So it's a very active kind of generation uh, pr process of generation. That means that, you know, you will always have multiple things in your back pocket that you can pull out for an opportunity. Um, but to answer your question, you know, if if you do have a, a kind of time pressured opportunity, I mean, I don't know. It's I guess it's a difficult question to answer in terms of different people are really different. Some people True. actually thrive under those um, circumstances. And in fact, some people would do better with you've got, you know, a month to get the draft in or three weeks to get the draft in and would really struggle with, you know what, you can get it in whenever you're ready. No rush, no pressure. Some people really thrive on and need a deadline. And other folks, you know, that sort of pressure kind of, you know, causes a, a meltdown and they can't really work under those conditions. So I think I would say for, for starters to know yourself and get to, and get to know yourself like you know what is the right amount of pressure um what's the right amount of accountability and by accountability i mean you know having other people who are you know reliant on you or waiting on something from you um what yeah what are what are the circumstances which help you um you know do your best work and it's that's not one thing that you're going to just learn and then you know, for, forever, right. that will be how you are. We all change over time. I know for myself with um, practice, and I've gotten a lot, I'm a lot more skilled now at sitting down when I'm tired, when I'm grumpy, when I'm overworked, um, sitting down and just writing and getting it out. Whereas in my earlier career, I sort of used to be a bit more reliant on those magical waves of yeah. inspiration that you know, I, yeah. I for a month would be struggling to find the wave. Where's the inspiration, you know? And um, uh, and when the inspiration came, then I was like, good. I was like, you know, like all in the flow. But if the inspiration wasn't there, I couldn't actually work. And know that, you know, that is a skill that you will learn. So don't be discouraged if, you know, um uh sometimes you're finding it's really hard to create and other times it it flows so you know just really getting to know yourself um your process knowing that will change over time and knowing that these are things that you can learn these are all skills that you know literally like going to the gym writing or creating is like going to the gym there is no substitute for actually you know doing the creating work um so, you know, I would say, yeah, like, uh, 
create something that feels inspiring and exciting and manageable. And if you fall flat on your face, then be prepared and ready to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get some support from folks around you and try again. Um, If you haven't had creative failures, then I'm going to guess that you've created very, very, very few things, you know, and I've learned um, some of my best skills and most profound lessons from the times when I've fallen flat on my face as well as the times when I've really succeeded. So, you know, um, just, yeah, keep going um, and, you know, um, know that that, that creating is a, a long time process of skill development and learning and, um, and all of the rest. Sonny, I think that's very well said. And thank you so much for your, your time and your insights. I really appreciate what you're doing and how you're doing it in this conversation. So thank you, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on your show. And yeah, lovely to get to chat and all the best. Yo, Spice Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig at the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.